So you know how Pirates of the Caribbean was the first like movie franchise that was launched after a ride mm-hmm. at Disney World, yep, right? Yep, so yep, like, yep. it was a ride first, and then they added the story, and now they changed the ride, right? Right. I have a similar thought. It's a small world, the movie. Now hear me out. It's about a collection of multicultural characters that keep bumping into each other all the time in their adventures. Okay. It's a small world after all. Like which brings us to today's topic, Parkinson's disease. <laughs> No, okay, so you want to make a movie called It's a Small World. Yeah. They have a killer cast, people all over the world. I think you'd really have to nail the plot. I think the plot could honestly be anything as long as the characters keep bumping into each other. Like bumping into each other like, hey, good to see you. I just bumped into you. Like literally like running into each other's bodies. No, 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 like nice to see you. But like Lost maybe where they keep ending up on like an island or something like anything could be Small World. Okay, okay. We'll pitch it. Next big idea. We'll pitch it. J.J. Abrams. If you're listening. If you're listening. And I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, welcome to the Back to Basics podcast, a podcast where me, a firefighter paramedic and nurse, Jason, and Chris, get it right, an ER physician. Why are you attacking people? I don't know. Maybe people can mix us up. We do sound very similar. One feedback we've got on this podcast is that like sometimes it's hard to tell which one of us is talking. I feel like jokes you, on listen, you it's just me switching seats this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> the richer, sexier voice is crazy. <laughs> um, anyway, this is a podcast where we take complicated medical topics and we break them down to the basics so that you can uh, help. So you can help understand them. I'm Do doing great do. with this intro. Yeah. Right, it. Cool. Um, today's topic, neuromuscular disorders slash diseases. But not Slash really. So here's <laughs> why. All right. So quick caveat before we get going. Uh, if you want an EMS uh, CME credit for this, uh, CAPSI accredited, you can check that out at guardiancme.com. You can watch this podcast there instead of what you're watching or listening to it uh, on now and take a quick quiz and you will get a CAPSI credit for it. And you can turn that into your licensing body and still be an EMT paramedic EMR AEMT. IEMT. There's too many. Or anything in between. There's too yeah, many. Yeah, I'm getting, it's getting annoying. Like BEMT, yeah. CEMT. Also, another common question we get a lot is like, hey, you don't seem to have an AEMT program in your test prep thing. Which one should I sign up for? Are I feel like that's a pretty easy answer, though. Like the paramedic one, obviously. Yeah. Because then you get go more big, stuff. Yeah. Don't sign up for less. Also, another thing, another plug I'll put in here. If you enjoy this podcast, we actually launched another podcast. So the Collaborative Practice Podcast is a healthcare podcast where Jason and I, it's interview style. We interview people about healthcare business and innovation. So we've had some super interesting conversations with some, you know, different people doing different things in the healthcare industry. We talk about how we all need to come together and how all the different facets of medicine, whether it be legal, medical, pharmacy, the boards, everybody's got to come together to really Euthanasia. make. Nope, not that one. No? No. <laughs> I'm like, not yet, at least. Don't give away next episode. No. So, but anyway, if you enjoy this podcast, check out the Collaborative Practice Podcast as well. Um, it's just the two of us talking to people. That, in that podcast, I show up five minutes before not knowing what's going on. In this podcast, Chris shows up five minutes before not going on. Exactly. So, so the dynamic's a little different. Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more of me just being silent and listening to what you have to say. On that note, why don't you tell us about neuromuscular disorders? Yeah, so neuromuscular disorders really... I made a terrible mistake picking this topic because it's a very ill-defined thing. So I guess what I'm trying, what I want to talk about is a certain like slew of conditions and issues with the body that involve like motor function deterioration. 
So really, if I, if I had to name this, it wouldn't be as catchy, but I'd call this peripheral nervous system disorders and some degenerative neurological disorders involving the peripheral nervous system, specifically motor function. <laughs> Thank you for not naming the podcast right, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. so neuromuscular disorders. Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by that. So, Well, for high, super high level, neuromuscular disorders are disorders that the, the problem is with the neurons and obviously like all of your motor function and muscles like have everything in your body has to like get a nervous stimulus in order to work. Right. So your muscles aren't working because you have a nerve issue going on. Right. You have like neurological symptoms that aren't necessarily central nervous system. They're more peripheral nervous system, which we'll talk about. So first neuropathy in general, let's just define that word. Neuro means like brain or nervous system, mm -hmm. right? We want to don't, 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 don't want to say brain. We want to say nervous system. Right. And then pathy is always like pathophysiology or an issue with. Right. Mm -hmm. So neuropathy is going to be an issue with nerves. Right. OK. Let's talk high level nervous system. We have a central nervous system and a peripheral nervous system. Yep. It's kind of weird that we say it that way. They're not separate things. They're connected. That's the whole point. Right. You have a nervous system. The central nervous system refers to the brain and the spinal cord. Okay, so higher order thinking, neurological issues like that, we're not talking about today. We're not talking about brain issues. We're not talking about strokes. We're not talking about Alzheimer's disease. We're not talking about like neuro conditions. Which is funny because in some of my research, the first thing listed in neuromuscular disorders, they put Alzheimer's disease. It's not a neuromuscular disorder. I don't know why I got put in there. Interesting. I think it was maybe in a section that was like degenerative neurological disorders, yep. which a lot of neuromuscular disorders are. And that's so, where it kind of gets ill. And sometimes but. I get frustrated in medicine. Like we start to over define things so much that like we put things into boxes where they don't necessarily need, like everything is connected. Like your body actually works all together. Yeah. So like everything affects everything in some way, shape or form for learning different types of disease. topics, like, it's good to box it out. Just be careful. You don't box certain things into like, like if you put all neuro disorders in a box and then all neuromuscular disorders in a box, yeah, you're going to be confused when there's crossover. But of course there's crossover. How, how can there not be? Right? Venn so, diagram. We want more Venn diagrams, less boxes. Yes. We're all about the Venn diagram. And that's why in 2023, Chris will be releasing his textbook called The Venn Diagrams of Medicine. <laughs> it. It's just every medical topic in a Venn diagram. It's kind of similar. Yeah. <laughs> like, look, honestly, strokes, heart attacks, different things. Venn diagram, both clots. Dude. I'm going to write this textbook for real. It's going to be a maybe, whole... Maybe a workbook. Let's start small. All right. Okay. Cool. Anyway, where was I going with this? Neuropathy. <laughs> Neuropathy. Um, before we can understand that, we got to understand the nervous system as a whole. So you have your nervous system, which is split oftentimes between the central nervous system, referring to the brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which the penis. Your sensory... Your, the penis? The PNS, penis, oh. which controls things like... Your penis. <laughs> yes. So, so it's more, it's motor function. So it's all anything attached to the, to the spinal cord. Yeah. So central nervous system, heads, shoulders, knees, toes, ears, eyes. If people don't mouth. turn the podcast off at this point, <laughs> I, it's only because they've listened to it before and know that hopefully we'll wrap it up soon. I feel like the, the podcast that I'm more prepared to present on, I like dick around way more and it ends up just dragging it on. So sorry guys, we'll keep it to a half hour. Here we go. Central nervous system. <laughs> Central nervous system versus peripheral nervous system. The To understand the nervous system, especially the peripheral nervous system, which is what we'll be concentrating on mostly, and understanding how that innervates into a muscle and starts making your muscle contract, you have to understand a neuron. So we're not going to go over all the parts of a neuron, but we're going to give you the general idea, all right? 
neuron has like a little tree like thing called a ganglia. You got an axon terminal. You got like this whole like basically you got like a big bush and then you've got a line in between the bush to the other little bush at the bottom of it. (laughs) Sure. Right. Yeah. Cool. So there's a neuron for you. Right. And then the bushes touch each other and that's what continues the action potential and eventually the bush will end at a muscle. This is so unhelpful. No. Okay. Well then go for it. Let me try. A neuron has a cell body. Yes. Right? So think of a cell. Looks kind of like a bush. (laughs) It may look like a bush. You then have a essentially like long channel. Axon. The axon. That then ends in what's called an axon terminal, which in Jason's analogy is like a little bush. The cell body, so the part where that holds the nucleus of the neuron, the big cell body, has its own like little like dendrites that come off of it and basically pick up the chemicals that the previous neurons axon terminal is releasing into mm-hmm. the system. So that's essentially it. the axon itself. So the long channel between the cell body and the axon terminal is covered with like saran wrap. Like there's like, yeah. like, like there's like saran, it insulates it. It allows the action potential, which is the, chemical cascade that like causes a neuron to fire it's a it's a release of sodium and potassium and like back and forth down the channel it insulates that so that it can happen faster yeah so it, it's electricity like, like we, we we like to think that these are electrical impulses but we don't like to think that electrical impulses are caused by like chemicals moving that confuses ion us channels, right but right yeah so sodium ion channels potassium. are what's causing this action potential to move it's a little bit different than cardiac like you might be more familiar with like cardiac uh, cells and how the electricity moves in that. This is a little bit different because we're talking about slower muscle cells, um, different types of muscle cells, I should say. But anyway, what's happening basically is those dendrites, I'm sorry, not, not the dendrites, the uh, myelin sheaths, the saran wrap Chris is talking about, uh, coats sections of it so the impulse can j- basically jump those sections. So it jumps the saran wrap to the next gap and then it jumps to the next gap and jumps to the next gap. And it, it makes the electrical impulse travel way faster through that neuron and therefore all of the neurons until you get to the muscle cell and you activate that muscle. Now, how that activation of muscle happens is at the synaptic cleft. So where you basically have a gap between the two cells, a nerve cell and the muscle cell. Um, inside that, that terminal, that axon terminal, we basically have the action potential reach uh, our cells, and then these little capsules open up and they release into the synaptic cleft what's called acetylcholine. And acetylcholine binds to receptors on the muscle cell to create the environment for the muscle to then contract. contract. Now, yep. the, the muscle is going to contract using actin and myosin, you know, like the myosin chain and the actin chain. Like If you've ever seen the, the video of the, the actin walking, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's what causes contraction. But in order for that to happen, you need acetylcholine to, to bind to receptors. Yep. Okay. So what happens is in this cleft, in this like open space in between, we get a bunch of acetylcholine and it's binding, it's binding, it's binding. Eventually, we want that muscle to stop contracting. So we have to release something to break down the acetylcholine. Otherwise, we'll keep binding and binding and binding in the muscle. We'll keep contracting, contracting, contracting. So your body always has to kind of like whatever, it's got to resorb, resorb whatever it's releasing type right. of thing, right? So in this case, acetylcholine is being released by the neuron. It's triggering the muscle cell calcium channels to fire so that the muscle contracts. Exactly. A chemical called acetylcholinesterase is released into that same cleft that you're talking about, that space between the neuron and the muscle cell, and that breaks down the acetylcholine so that there's an end 
to that contraction. Right. And that's just an enzyme and it breaks it down into choline and acetic acid, mm-hmm. which is like inert. It's not going to do anything there. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we basically have, this sounds complicated, but, but what we basically have in conditions that involve the, the muscle, like, like muscle issues that are neurological in nature, we're either going to have a lot of times a decreased acetylcholine release, which would cause a lack of muscle contraction, right? We don't mm-hmm. have enough acetylcholine to contract the muscle well. We're going to have a decreased acetylcholine esterase release, which means that we have too much acetylcholine in that synaptic cleft and we can't stop the contraction. So we have way more contractions and we, we start failing in control. Or we're going to have a decreased effect of acetylcholine on the muscle cell. So it's not the production of the acetylcholine. It is the lack of effect of the acetylcholine on the muscle cell. So a lot of conditions involve these mechanisms. That's why we want to spell it out for you first. Um, ways that we can treat these issues a lot of times. So like if I wanted to help muscle contraction, I would increase acetylcholine or I could decrease acetylcholine esterase, right? Yep. yep. Uh, if I wanted to stop muscle contraction, I could decrease acetylcholine or I could increase acetylcholine esterase. Right. So you see how we talk about this concept in medicine a lot, but two sides of the same coin, we can kind of play with both both sides and get the same effect, right? right? The desired effect. And again, and we've said this so many times in the podcast, and I think this is such an important piece to remember that everything we do in medicine is to help the body do something that it already does. Mm-hmm. So this is the example here, right? We're either going to help the body produce more acetylcholine or help the body have more acetylcholine esterase, depending on what effect we're kind of get, or vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Like so the, the medications we use, the way we, you know, like the way we treat then becomes the assistance to that process. Exactly. And to, to make this a little bit more like tangible for you, to give you an example, uh, a lot of like organophosphate poisoning, where we see muscle issues, contraction issues, organophosphates will block acetylcholine esterase. So it stops the production of the stuff that takes care of our ACH. So if our AC, we have too much ACH in the system because of that, what does that mean? Lots of muscle contraction, lots of twitching, lots of, lots of issues there, right? right? Which is why in organophosphate poisoning, you'll see that kind of issue. Yeah. And the other things too, is like, you guys got to remember, and then we won't go into it, but like acetylcholinesterase or sorry, acetylcholine does a lot of other things in the body too. We're talking today about what it does to muscles Mm -hmm. and the muscle side of it. But acetylcholine does a lot of other things in the body, just like epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, like all those different types of things, right? Mm-hmm. It's that same type of like chemical. So just keep that in mind that you will see in, in muscular conditions that we're talking about other symptoms that may play into the acetylcholine part. So a good example of this is going to be our first sort of disease process, disease condition, whatever you want to call it, um, myasthenia gravis. Okay, so this is an autoimmune disease. So we know that autoimmune just means that our immune system um, is recognizing something as a threat that's that it's not right. It thinks that itself is a threat, like the body itself is a threat. So it's an autoimmune disease that destroys acetylcholine receptors. So on the muscle cell, the acetylcholine receptors start to become destroyed. Now, if that happens, let's think logically what, what that would mean, right? It's not a lack of acetylcholine that's the issue. It's not a lack of acetylcholine esterase. It's not too much of those things. It's that the, the binding site isn't working. So there's not a whole lot we can do about that, right? But what we end up having to do is what it ends up causing is weakness, fatigue. You know, often so the, your eyes start to go because we have well, a lack your, of is, contraction. Is it your eyesight or is it like the muscles? Like your, the muscles in your eyes. The muscles in the eyes. So your like eyelids and stuff start to like droop right? Because mm-hmm. you can't open them. So that's usually one of the first things we see in myasthenia gravis is like 
droopy eyelids yeah. sometimes kind of like the one of the first things that well not the person that we see necessarily from a clinical standpoint but the first thing that like we're gonna literally see like like this first symptom we're gonna like notice yeah. in somebody certainly not the first thing they're gonna see because <laughs> droopy one. eyes good point good point um <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you for that so yep. anyway what what so the, this where this can get really deadly and a lot of these diseases can get deadly is that if you're respiratory your diaphragmatic muscles start to become affected right because it, well, this let's is stop right systemic there. the diaphragm is a muscle Mm-hmm. Right. So the end point and it's a big muscle. I mean, think about it. The, the diaphragm is a very large muscle in your abdomen, like between your abdomen and your chest wall. So or chest cavity. So the end point to a lot of these diseases is suffocation, really, in a way. Yeah. Right. Because the diaphragm being that big muscle, if that gets weak, now we can't breathe. We can't take a deep breath because the diaphragm has to flex in, you know, in order for us to be able to breathe. Exactly. So what do we do about this? And this is a. Very interesting example, too, was we give anti-acetylcholine esterase drugs. Right. So if I stop the breakdown of acetylcholine, even though my receptors suck, I've got more acetylcholine in there. So hopefully that will help with the muscle contraction. Now there's more of a chance the issue. But. So you got to look at it this way. The autoimmune and, and obviously like we're going to treat with autoimmune like drugs. Like we're going to try to like suppress the immune system so that it's not attacking those receptors. Mm-hmm. It's not it's attacking the receptors the the goal here is to the receptors that are there that haven't been attacked yet give them the best chance they have and the best chance they have is to have acetylcholine floating around there long enough that they can like bind to it and then move the muscle right flex the muscle type of thing so by inhibiting acetylcholine esterase so by inhibiting the thing that's going to break that acetylcholine down it gets to sit there longer and bind to the receptors that are still around more which would in, increase muscle contraction right. or help with right. that but again, like that's there. that's how we treat the symptoms, mm-hmm. right? That's how we treat the symptoms. The process is the autoimmune process, right? So immunosuppressants are going to be the the long term management for someone with myasthenia gravis, so that they can they don't continue to break down those receptors. And a those lot of these aren't will, curable conditions. Like right. like an autoimmune disease isn't really a curable condition. What right. we can do is deal with the effects of it and try to prevent its. And these receptors will regrow too if given enough time. So the idea is can can we suppress the immune system enough? So that the receptors can continue to like recreate themselves and, and bind acetylcholine. And when we're in a crisis state or we're in a state where we're symptomatic from it, because we don't want it to like affect the diaphragm and things, we give these you know, again acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that allow for more acetylcholine to be there to bind the receptors that do exist. Exactly. Nice. Nailed it. All right. Um, so kind of going off of that point too, to kind of explain on the other side, we talked about those myelin sheaths. Sometimes we can have issues in neuromuscular disorders where we have an issue with the myelin sheath and therefore we have a a poor impulse control, right? So what I'm talking about is basically a a form of peripheral nerve injury, okay? So when we're talking about damage to the nerve itself versus an overproduction or underproduction of chemicals, right? So demyelinating diseases, uh, for example, the the most obvious example that we talk about a lot are Guillain-Barre and then multiple sclerosis, right? So Guillain-Barre syndrome is basically... Again, it, it can be caused by, it's an inflammation. It, it can be caused by an autoimmune thing. It can be caused by a toxic agent. It could be caused by mel- metabolic disease. In fact, with Guillain-Barre, they say two-thirds of people usually had like an infectious virus um, before the production of the disease, right? Something essentially triggers the immune system, yeah. whether it be a virus, whether it be a autoimmune condition, like a predisposition to that or a toxin, something triggers the body to 
attack the myelin sheath, right? And if we no longer have that insulation on the myelin sheath, we're still getting the chemical impulses. We're still getting release of acetylcholine at the end and the acetylcholinesterase and all that stuff. The problem is it's taking now way longer to get from the cell body of the neuron down to that um, terminal, that uh, axon terminal. Because that insulation isn't allowing us to skip over that neuron a lot faster. Mm -hmm, So so when we have these demyelinating disorders, Guillain-Barre being one of them, um, we start to see motor dysfunction, obviously. Slower, slower, Slower motor response, you know, uh, kind of a messed up motor response. Maybe it's not like listening to you when, you when you're telling it to do something. So you start to have that dysfunction. Now, multiple sclerosis is another type of demyelinating disorder, but it's not technically like a peripheral nerve injury because it has to do with the central nervous system. So a central nervous system, brain and spinal cord disease, causes that inflammation of now peripheral neurons and then the demyelination happens and then you have the dysfunction. Okay. So two different ways to get there. Same pathophysiology though, makes sense that w- what we're dealing with. Right. So do you want to talk about the symptoms of Gambare and like multiple sclerosis? I mean, we're kind of covering this anyway, but there's some like nuanced pieces we can talk about. So for Gambare specifically, you get ascending paralysis. So it's starting in the peripheral part, right? So you get usually in the hands and feet, you'll get numbness, tingling, maybe some weakness, and that'll, ascend so move up your body so then you get to the point where maybe you can't walk and again the the worrisome piece the scary piece is that could that ascend all the way up to the diaphragm and all of a sudden you're having trouble breathing and or or not be able to breathe um multiple sclerosis is a little bit different multiple sclerosis has lots of different ways that this plays out so again what we're talking about here muscle weakness muscle rigidity uh tremors like any getting kind of these like you know paralysis sensory issues typically with multiple sclerosis because it's central though because it's that central demyelinating first in like in the brain and spinal cord, it will happen in different parts of the brain and spinal cord. So there won't be any, like it'll all of a sudden be like, Oh, like one time I couldn't move my arm for a couple of days. And then three weeks later I had numbness and tingling in my leg. And then eight weeks after that, I had some like general fatigue and you know what I mean? So it's, it's it, cause it, cause it's, it's demyelinating different parts of the brain, which are more central. So it's not playing out in a peripheral faction in like a reproducible, obvious way. Cool. So that covers myasthenia gravis, peripheral nerve injuries, Guillain-Barre, and multiple sclerosis. Now we're going to move on to Parkinson's. Okay. So Parkinson's is like a series of conditions, disease process that basically involves four things. Uh, You need to have tremors, rigidity, bradykinesia, and postural instability. And what this is is Little, little confusing, but your your basal ganglia, which is in your brain, so it's a portion of your brain, has a part of it called the substantia nigra. Mm-hmm. Now, that is responsible. We didn't learn until 1960 that dopamine plays a pretty significant role in muscle use, muscle contraction, the, the ability to use your muscles. So the substantia nigra is responsible for like producing a lot of that dopamine. And usually what we start to see is an issue with that area of the brain and therefore lack of dopamine and therefore Parkinsonian symptoms. So Parkinson's disease is one of these diseases where like, like all the neuromuscular stuff we're talking about is like you're, sometimes I want to say like every all the different muscle things we're talking about you're going to see in all the neuromuscular disorders Venn diagram Venn diagram (laughs) we have to Parkinson's is like 
a couple of them grouped together yeah. because of what you're specifically talking about, right? So it's, I, I don't like it when people try to like act like these are all very separate things. Like, no, they're actually all very much the same. We just like to define them based on where it's happening specifically, maybe maybe how symptoms like come together because right. it's easier for us to like notice those patterns as human beings. The body's still working the same way across the board. So in this case, like you're saying, like, is demyelinating? It's it's like a demyelinating, right? Is no, it? No, it's it's a lack of dopamine production, basically, and which is why we usually give like Cinemet or like levodopa because that's the give dopamine, levodopa basically. because yeah, it's basically a form that can turn into dopamine in the way that we want it to. We wouldn't want to just like start giving them dopamine, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, it, it's everyone technically like it, I don't even really know if I like calling it a disease because like, it's not like you catch Parkinson's like. Parkinson's everyone eventually will develop Parkinsonian symptoms and like have Parkinson's disease technically because eventually that area of your basal ganglia will start to wear out. So this is why like elderly people will like get shaky and tremors and stuff like that. Like if you live long enough, you will develop these symptoms. Parkinsonian symptoms. Yes. And the way that we treat them would be with basically a form of of dopamine Mm. levodopa you know now let me ask you this so i know that when i get likes on instagram supposedly i get a dopamine dump every time i see that like button hit different can i prevent parkinson's disease by having a lot of followers on instagram no are you sure (laughs) yes (laughs) okay different like same same chemical but different function of it, mm, right? Okay. Just like you were saying with acetylcholine, right? We're going to see that different places in the body. We're going to see dopamine. We, you might see it when you're on TikTok and you get some followers or whatever, or Instagram, whatever you whatever mm-hmm. you prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, Only fans. But no. Nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, this is a diff- different usage of it. So you heard it here, folks. Direction. Increasing your Instagram following is not going to help you prevent Parkinson's disease, unfortunately. Correct. We'll test it, though. I would love for someone to like prove me wrong with that and like do a whole case study and like find out that like there's a way. But you, to, it would take forever because you got to get young people who have Instagram now and then you got to follow them for 20 to 30, 40 years to see when they get older if they. Which is why it's so important that you guys take a listen to the Collaborative Practice podcast, our second podcast, yeah. because we're trying to get enough followers so that we can run this case study exactly. and find out if, do you want to stop Parkinson's? <laughs> <laughs> then join us on the join Collaborative us. Practice podcast. I love it. Um, cool. So moving on from that, uh, ALS. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Amotrophic lateral sclerosis. Is that correct? I think it's close enough. Amotrophic. I think it's close enough. You don't know the answer. No, I don't know the answer. (laughs) No idea. (laughs) Um, This is commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig. I know you're going to go on your tangent, but let me start. Lou Gehrig's was a baseball uh, star, like, like very well-known athlete died of this disease. Right. So now Chris is going to go ahead and crap on his name by no, saying that you shouldn't crap, name I, no. diseases after people. I agree. I don't. Right? Yeah. And I don't think we do anymore. I think like like we as a medical field have gotten away from like naming diseases after a person because it just confuses people. Right. Like it doesn't like if the name should define the disease in a way where I know what you're talking about. There's you also me, like, a lot of different types of ALS. So like Lou Gehrig's had a specific type. So to call it Lou Gehrig's disease is like, well, mine looks nothing like his. Yeah. So how, you know. Right. I yeah. don't actually have it. I hope, <laughs> but I'm Hopefully. just saying people right. might be like, mine doesn't look anything like Lou Gehrig's. Yeah. Why is it named after him? It bothers me when we name stuff after people like the Washington monument. Right. It's exactly. Giant, it's just a giant tower. Exactly. Right. <laughs> they should call that the skinny tower, <laughs> skinny white tower, skinny America. white tower of America. Okay. It'd be way easier. Now people know what I'm talking about. I love it. So, so the other thing that might uh, help you understand this a little bit more is Stephen Hawking uh, died in 2018. Famous theoretical physicist. Um, he had 
Lou Gehrig's disease. He had ALS. He had ALS, yep. So yep. he had a form of ALS too. Now, usually people don't live more than like three to five years with ALS because Once it's this diagnosed. like progressive degeneration. It's basically damage to the upper and lower neurons. Um, we don't know what causes it. Like, I can't tell you it's autoimmune. I can't tell you. We have no idea what causes it. There's been some research talking about the free radicals thing. Like, it might be like a... Like an increased amount of free radicals might, isn't, isn't that the one? Yeah, but every, you get into the free radical conversation, like every disease. Right. Is like, so it's like magic. Also, I think that I'm going to step back here, but like Parkinson's as well, we don't really know why some people, it's genetic disposition to Parkinson's disease typically, right? If you, yeah, if you develop it early. Young, if you don't yeah, like your 40s, 50s early. and like, but, and that's usually how we define Parkinson's disease, disease. Like if we're going to, if we're going to group it, the symptoms into a thing, like it's when people typically men develop it in their like 40s, 50s. And usually there's a genetic predisposition there. But to your point, if everybody lives long enough, you will get some degeneration of that part of your brain anyway and develop Parkinsonian-like symptoms, mm-hmm. which is why it gets confusing. So anyway, ALS. Why we should just call it the shaky disease <laughs> and not Parkinson's. Shaky I'm pretty one. sure. Is that the one that, uh, what's his name, Marty? <laughs> Marty? Marty McFly. Which one is the Oh, Marty the guy, McFly? he has. That Parkinson's? Oh, I think he has Parkinson's or ALS. That's a good question. I'll look that up right now. Look that up while I I talk. Okay. um, So anyway, there's a bunch of different types of ALS. So the symptoms might kind of vary, but basically you're going to have progressive damage to upper and lower neurons, which is going to cause all types of muscle issues. Again, the way that you end up dying from this is usually like a diaphragmatic muscle breakdown. So you usually die from asphyxiation of some sort uh, where you can't breathe. A lot of these people will develop a, uh, respiratory infection and won't just won't be able to kick it. Yes. Michael yeah. J. Fox has Parkinson's disease. Michael J. Fox, Marty yep. McFlyer, Parkinson's. Yeah. Yep. Very so, severe Parkinson's. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see but actually like throughout well. his, it's really sad. Like, well, like throughout his career, you can see like it affect him more and more and more. Right. Cause and it's, it's interesting freaking. actually like he, he has an example cause he's a public figure who has Parkinson's disease who we, we see a lot of his symptoms have actually become more well controlled we're getting we're getting better at treating it a little bit the symptomatology part of it you know with the medications that we use which is interesting but yeah it's it's interesting i was at a uh i know we keep jumping back to parkinson's sorry we're talking about als we kind of covered it (laughs) um uh but talking about parkinson's i had so natalie's cousin asked me about one of our family members at this party we were at and was like do you think he has like parkinson's because he was shaking really badly he was holding his glass and he was shaking really badly and that's Mm -hmm. when it was like a good time to explain like yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. right. You know, what I mean, it's not like he has this like early disease that's going to be super progressive and push really fast, but like everybody will will eventually develop those tremors. He's getting them a little bit earlier, so yes, they're Parkinson's like symptoms. Well, that's, I think that like the the, the, the Parkinsonian symptoms or Parkinsonian like like that's something that we use because if it's not these couple things grouped into a box like we talked about, that's happening at a certain age. We technically don't call it Parkinson's, but it's all the same pathology. Like that's what you're trying to say. It's all right. it's all the same. So cool. So that covers Parkinson's and ALS. Um, now I basically want to just go into caveats that aren't quite neuromuscular disorders. Don't really like fit the script, but you'll see them in Venn diagrams all the time. <laughs> all right, so you'll see them. And you're about to see in so many more Venn diagrams when I come <laughs> with my workbook. <laughs> so muscular dystrophy is always talked about when we talk about these conditions. What's funny is muscular dystrophy doesn't have anything to do with neuro anything. It's just a muscle breakdown. Mm-hmm. So muscular dystrophy is basically a genetic uh, condition. It's usually attached to the X chromosome, which means that males 
typically have muscular dystrophy because mm-hmm. females will have a backup X chromosome that will basically like handle that for mm-hmm. them. Yep. Um, but uh, it's progressive muscle degeneration as a whole. So not doesn't have anything to do with the neuron, doesn't have anything to do with the, the muscle terminal, doesn't just... have anything to do with the synaptic cleft, just the muscle sucks and it can't, mm-hmm. it can't do its job. Gotcha. So that's what muscular dystrophy is. Um, other kind of CNS caveats, um, Bell's palsy is, is something that we see a lot that we, sometimes we mistake for a neuromuscular disorder. I guess you can call it neuromuscular. It's yeah. hard to, hard to define, but um, we mistake it for like strokes. A lot of times Bell's palsy, it's basically for facial paralysis. It's just caused from cranial nerve seven, 100% seven, yep. cranial nerve seven um, inflammation in that area, which causes Bell's palsy, which uh, and the way you contractions of the face, like, well, you get drooping. paralysis, you get paralysis yeah. of the, of one side of the face because those cranial nerves cross. So interesting enough, the way you can tell if it's Bell's palsy versus a stroke is whether or not you have both upper and lower facial paralysis in a stroke based on how the neurons cross in the back of the brain, you'll only get upper or only lower paralysis. You won't get both. If you have both, it has to be a more peripheral because now they've already crossed so now, so basically like if you, if you get inflammation of the nerve, the peripheral, peripheral part of the cranial nerve seven, then it's controlling the motor of the upper and the lower. If you have a stroke back in the brain or back in the brainstem, that's before that neuron crosses. That makes sense. Yeah. So you yeah. only get one, which is, mm. but yeah, it's, it's, it's usually, we think similar to like Gambray, we think that Bell's palsy, like can sometimes be that inflammation can be triggered by like viral infections that like you, you have a viral mm-hmm. infection and then you develop both. It's not a hundred percent related. We don't really know totally, but, but it's um, treatable. We, I mean, we can give corticosteroids and anti-inflammatories and basically like treat the inflammation in the nerve. Mm-hmm. It's not permanent from it what actually I know. can be can it? in like more, a larger percentage of cases than you would hope. Oh yeah. Okay. Not like a ton, but like 10%, which to me is a lot. Yeah, to like permanently have Bell's palsy. Yeah, that's and I'm not, I'm not saying it's ten percent. I'm just saying that it's something like something like, 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 like. Don't quote him on this because he yeah. doesn't actually know. Right, that's what I'm trying to say. Exactly. <laughs> so glad you guys tuned in. <laughs> um, so cool. Um, the inflammation can be treated with corticosteroids. It usually clears up within three months, and you can get rid of the facial paralysis. But apparently, in a statistic somewhere around ten percent, or significant as ten percent, but maybe not. <laughs> I'll look it up. I'll look it up. But it's it like it can it's, be permanent. I just remember being like, "Oh, like I thought it was like very rare to have it be permanent." I want you to look up. I want it to be like point zero five percent. So that you feel like you're such an idiot. <laughs> All right. Uh, while you do that, I'm going to talk about polio. Polio is an infectious inflammatory vi- virus of the CNS that also obviously results in uh, paralysis. So like you think like polio, what's his face had polio? You know, that, pre- that president. Yeah, what's that? That president. <laughs> yeah. What? Why can't I think of his name? I don't know. I look like such an idiot in this podcast. Anyway. Give me a second. Teddy Roosevelt. There you go. Right. Teddy Roosevelt. No, not Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, not Franklin Teddy Ro- D. Roosevelt. Franklin D. Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt yeah. went hunting and like killed bears and stuff. He did yeah. not do that in a wheelchair. No. Yes. Although that would have been cool. our great president, Frank Teddy the Third Roosevelt. <laughs> I just don't know anything about history. And you can see his monument next to the tall, white, skinny monument of America. Of America, exactly. Because <laughs> we don't name things after people. Oh, oh my gosh! Is First thing. However, the remaining 10% will experience some degree of permanent paralysis. Oh, look at that. Oh, I did right. See? In. But that 10%, I remember being surprised by that. That's, that's like one in 10, like we'll have it permanent. That sucks. Right. 
I thought it was less than that. I feel like there's a lot of stats in medicine that are like significant stats if you're in that 10%. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Well, one in 10 is a lot. I heard someone say, and it's a weird way to say it, but like this was more talking about like how we approach, and this is such a tangent, but like how we approach patients who have any disease that like for them, it's a hundred percent, whether like it's a rare thing for something to happen, like to the person who has it, it's a hundred percent. So we have to like meet people in that way and and think about things that way a little bit from like a, just how we care for people. Because again, like I think it's easy to be like, Oh yeah. And like only 10% of it. Yeah. But for that 10%, like that is, that's their life now. So like we have to like, right. Just be cognizant of that. I don't know. Take that. Not to be like, Oh my gosh, unlucky straw, like 100% your life sucks yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have, to, yeah, you have to deal yeah. with. Yeah. So I feel you. Anyway. Um, anyway, polio stands for polio myelitis, inflammation, itis, inflammation. Mm-hmm. Maya, meaning muscle. Milo, muscle, yeah. muscle. Myelin sheath, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a CNS condition. It's infectious. You can get vaccinated to it. Mm-hmm. So get vaccinated. Whether you believe in the COVID vaccine or not, get vaccinated against polio. That, that would one, be one. That one we're pretty sure about. <laughs> that one, no, we're like definitely sure about that one. Yeah. I don't, you, oh. you don't have to do your flu shot. You don't want to do, you don't have to do your COVID one, but I would highly recommend polio. Yeah. Get polio. Yep. Don't, don't get polio. Get the polio vaccine. Get the polio vaccine. All right. Yeah. Sweet. Um, last thing I want to talk about is just dystonia. Um, Dystocia is the name of the symptom, correct? I think so, yeah. Dystocia. Mm-hmm. Um, but dystonia is basically like it's twisting and repetitive movements, freezing and abnormal posturing. Um, it's almost like muscle spasming, spasming up yeah. a little like, bit, right? The, the way it's defined in, in the couple of reference materials I use is like like it's its own disease. But I've always seen this as like basically a symptomology that's it's a symptom. other things. It's a right? symptom. It's not a disease. You don't You don't develop dystonia as a disease process. You can get dystonia as a symptom from lots of things. Toxins can do it. There's like a lot of viruses, uh, I'm sure. Like, anti-psych um, meds. Right. Yeah. We'll so certain medications. Dystocias. Dystocia, yeah. yeah. So, so and if you break the word dystonia down, tone, like to, like muscle tone and dis meaning like abnormality or right? yeah. dysfunction. So dysfunction of the tone. So it's like either like, like you said, like the muscle become contorted because it's like contracting nonstop or, to, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, again, that, that is a, a symptom. You can get it from as a side effect of certain medications, certain toxins can cause it, certain disease processes can have that as a part, right? I mean, like a lot of these neuromuscular disorders will have a type of dystonia or dystocia built into it, like as a part of the ways you'll experience that degradation. That's why I just wanted to talk about that. Just, just as a symptom, like it's a good way, like I'm not a provider that would diagnose any of these conditions, right? But I would recognize symptoms of these conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's important to kind of pay attention to those because it's such a Venn diagram. Yeah. Pay attention to the different symptoms that define different things and help you kind of understand what your patient's going through. Maybe you can't name that your patient is definitely having, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome, but you can certainly recognize peripheral motor dysfunction and, you know, dysthenia and things like that where you, they, they can't feel right. You yeah. Know? And that's the first part, right? Like we start, to, we have to define these symptoms so that we can then work towards figuring out what the cause is so we can figure out that what how we're going to treat and maybe we're just treating the symptoms to prevent worsening symptoms like diaphragmatic paralysis maybe we're treating the actual disease process to prolong how long it'll take for an autoimmune system to continue to cause problems you know what i mean things like that um but again i think to your point especially for for us and i'll even conclude myself this as as an emergency side of the physician you know physician side of things but as nurses as paramedics as physical therapists. I mean, people who are on like the front lines of like meeting people, like being on the lookout for these types of symptoms so that we can get them on that path of diagnosis, I think is a lot of times, I think we over, we overlook that sometimes. And we've talked about this before too, but like sometimes like 
it's always fun to get to the diagnosis, right? It's always fun to diagnose someone. The majority of us out there in the healthcare system, our job isn't to diagnose. Our job is to listen and learn and hear what our patients have to say and get them on the path of diagnosis. So ignoring the fact that, oh, my, my feet feel numb and tingly, like, ah, whatever, versus being like, oh, let me hear a little more about that. Like, let's, let's look at it. Let's take a look. Maybe it is nothing, but like, our, I would almost argue that like 90% of healthcare workers in general, our job is to help patients get on that path of diagnosis, mm -hmm. really. I mean, I think if we start looking at it that way, it'll make us stop and be more present and listen a little bit better and take the time to do that full physical exam and take the time to raise that question to the next provider and that sort of thing. So. Right. Our job is to help the patient, not to solve the mystery always, yeah. right? And, yeah. and a lot of times... Even when you solve the mystery, there's not a way to help the patient beyond what you've already been doing because you've been treating the symptoms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you can't always like doctor house something and be like, he has this rare, you know, disease and here's the vaccine for it or here's right. the yeah, special yeah, 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 you yeah. Know, cure for it. It doesn't really work that yeah, way. Yeah. So cool. So this has been Jason Seitz's lectures on peripheral nervous system disorders and, and some degenerative neurological disorders really more involving the peripheral nervous system, i.e. motor function, with some CDNS caveats. Perfect. So thank you for and attending. And stay tuned for Chris Seitz's workbook on the Venn, Venn diagrams Venn of medicine. Diagrams <laughs> of medicine. I love it. And also, I know the difference between Teddy Roosevelt and FDR. I'm really embarrassed about that. So, so leave in the stay comments. Out of, stay out of the comments. <laughs> <laughs> so get in those comments. And it's been right, a guys. long day. I was up to three in the morning trying to prepare for this. You guys have you guys Don't no yell idea. at the audience. You Don't no yell at the audience. what I go through. Don't yell at the audience. What I go through for you. All right, All right. Cool. All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. Stay sweet. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for taking a listen. Uh, if you are studying for the National Registry exam, we're here to help. We have a National Registry prep program uh, to help you pass that exam. Check us out at guardiantestprep.com. If you'd like continuing education credits uh, for listening to our podcast or watching this on YouTube, follow us at guardiancme.com. 100% free CAPSI credits. Uh, no matter what state or country you're in, uh, we're here to help. So again, we thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week.